In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Father Mike DiMarcangelo. Uh, you may remember me from about six months ago. I was kind of doing a stealth interview um, and uh, got hired. So here I am. I, I don't start until... Uh, <laughs> I won't be formally starting full-time until November. I am stay at home right now with our little nine-month-old. Um, but when Father Scott comes back from sabbatical, I'll be joining him. And we're really grateful to, to be here with all of you and get to know all of you more. Um, so thank you for so warmly welcoming us. My wife Mandy's over there as well. Um, so when I say us, I really mean us. Thank you. All right, let's uh, direct our attention to, to Luke 15. We're going to camp out there most of this morning as I uh, spend time reflecting on Luke with all of you. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. probably be more accurate to say all the tax collectors and sinners here if you were to look at the original Greek. Whatever the case, from the, the Pharisees' perspective, there are a concerning number of sinners spending time with Jesus. This isn't a, a one-off, behind-the-doors, easily hidden and ignored instance. This is Jesus' way of life. He's done this before. He keeps on doing this. He's associating with all the wrong people. He keeps on doing it. He, as a religious leader, a rabbi, an authority in the community, he's even eating with them. He's intimately connected to these people. Who are these tax collectors and sinners that the Pharisees seem to despise so much? They're people who are not welcomed within the ordered religious and social system of the powerful Jewish leaders. The Pharisees know, or at least think they know, what the kingdom of God should look like. And these people don't belong there. They don't follow the purity laws. They don't follow the food laws. One English translation, the New Living Translation, calls them notorious sinners. Their lack of belonging is so obvious that their reputation precedes them. They're notorious. This is kind of abstract for us today sinners and tax collectors. And so uh, a question I think worth asking is, what does it look like for us to make sense of our relationship with sinners and tax collectors? I think they're people who we believe threaten the safety and integrity of the kingdoms we build for ourselves, kingdoms we might mistake for the kingdom of God. These are people we don't want to do anything with because we know We are certain that they pollute our healthy, safe communities with their presence. Even if they do display some sense of repentance, as these sinners do throughout Luke's gospel, we thank God we're not like these people. In fact, there's a story in Luke's gospel that uh, tells um, the story of a, a Pharisee going into the temple saying this very thing. You probably know this if you're familiar with Luke's gospel. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. We're interested in seeing what the Pharisee does here. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, even this tax collector. Thank God I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. Thank God I'm not like him. Thank God I'm not like that woman that I met in Santa Monica last week, week with my wife, who she, she seemed homeless. And a lot of times homeless people I give to um, seem thankful, and I don't think they're manipulating me, but I'm pretty sure she was manipulating me, and I'm pretty sure she took advantage of me. Thank God I'm not like her, you know? Thank God I'm not like those vehement Trump fans or those vehement liberal Democrats, you know, that pollute our spaces with these ideologies that are just so strong, you know? Thank God I'm not like, I'm sure all of you are thinking of some things in your own lives. I know each of us has this disdain for people that might pollute our communities of certain kinds of kingdoms that we've built for ourselves. For some of us, maybe it's immigrants. I don't know. Maybe it's people that are powerful in some kind of corporation somewhere. Um, but each of us have these people who we thank God we're not like. Feel free to add your own if you'd like to. A woman from the first service said, my neighbor, very proud. <laughs> We talked for a while afterwards. I was curious as to why she seemed so happy to say that. Um, Jesus hears our disdainful grumblings about these sinners we don't want to be like. How does he respond? There are times when Jesus speaks to us, speaks to Pharisees, speaks to people throughout the Gospels with this incisive clarity and directness. You fools. Very clear. You are full of greed and wickedness. You tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kind. In other words, the gifts you give to God seem generous, seem good, but you neglect justice and the love of God. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms you have built for yourself. You could hear Jesus saying. Even these strong rebukes, though, Jesus' rebukes and truth-telling is always done with a goal. The goal of healing people of their sickness. He's often called the great physician. The church fathers, specifically Gregory the Great, but a few others kind of um, carry on this theme of Jesus as the great physician when they're reading Luke 15, the, the lost sheep and the lost coin parables that we encounter today. Gregory the Great says uh, something really beautiful. I'll share it with you. He says, the heavenly physician, wishing to bring them back, bring us back to a proper knowledge of themselves, undertakes to cure them by gentle remedies. He offers them a parable full of good nature and compresses in their heart the tumor of the abscess that hurts them. There are times for us, him to tell us very directly that we're being fools. And other times, he's much more gentler and always the the goal is a remedy that heals us, that helps us see our arrogance and pride and the way we have wish we're not like others and how wrong that is. He speaks truth, but in grace and generous love. It's not pub public condemnation and shame like our grumbling and flex on those we deem sinners, but instead stories that open up our imaginations to the upside-down beauty of the kingdom of God. And only if we have ears to hear stories that will ultimately save us from ourselves. 
These two parables we're going to be spending time with this morning are parables of the kingdom of God. And they they almost remind me of watching one of those film noirs where you come in with a very clear assumption of, or a particular lens of um, how the movie's going to play out, how the mystery's going to unfold. It prevents you from surveying the film's landscape, making sense of the strange details, solving the mystery, figuring out who did it. But if you're patient, if you truly want to watch the story unfold and question all your assumptions, eventually those assumptions will be turned on their head and suddenly all the strange details don't seem so strange anymore. Suddenly Lotso Bear definitely looks like a bad guy, if you like Toy Story 3. Or Kevin Spacey's limping Kaiser Soze suddenly is obviously a bad guy in the usual suspects. You get the point. So Jesus wants to gently tend to our wounds, and he does this with three consecutive parables. We only read two today. There's a lot of parables consecutively here. The first, the lost sheep, lost coin, and then the prodigal son, most famously. There, are, uh, there is a connection with all three, but there's also a cohesion with the first two. So it's appropriate for us to just focus on the lost sheep and the lost coin. These may be very familiar to us. There's a similar structure to both the parables. There's a story of some figure, a shepherd in one case, a woman in the others, who lose something dear to them, either a sheep or a coin. And then they take a great risk or devote all of their energies towards finding the thing that was lost. And after finding that subject, they rejoice. They then invite their friends and neighbors to celebrate in finding the thing lost and restoring wholeness to their community and to their life. Let me begin by just reading the, bit, the, the first part of the lost sheep parable. So Jesus told them, them being the Pharisees, those who hate sinners, them being us, which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? The first gentle remedy that Jesus applies here is um, he permits us and the Pharisees to continue to hold our central assumption. Our central assumption that we are the ones who are shepherds, the ones in authority. We have the hundred sheep. We are the ones doing the saving. He says, which one of you having a hundred sheep? He places us right in the story in a position of leadership and authority. But as we watch this story unfold, little detail after little detail encourages us to question that central tenet. It begins with the shepherd himself. These religious authorities, these Pharisees, they have a lot of influence and power in their communities. They're well-respected. They're listened to. They have wealth. This shepherd, he has a hundred sheep. There's some measure of wealth and influence, but there's also a a, a less um, influential, more humble position than a religious leader. Not the same social status. You can almost wonder or imagine the the Pharisees saying like, "Eh, I guess I'll be a shepherd this time, but next parable, maybe you make me a lord of something. And, And then leaving the 99 unguarded seems foolish, right? These wise religious leaders, 
they're not going to risk losing some of their wealth, those other 99 sheep. Jesus is putting us in this role. But I don't know if I would actually do this, if I would leave those 99 and go chase after the one. Is this a prudent or wise thing to do as a leader? And even if I did go and chase down that one and return it to the 99 and everything's okay, am I ready to rejoice over this lost sheep? Even if the sheep is found, it got itself lost. If the sinner is willing to repent and admit their areas of sin and wrongdoing, who, who knows if they're actually going to keep on doing it or not? That woman I met in Santa Monica definitely was going to keep on asking people for money. I know that. Is she worth being saved? Is she worth the, the risk of going chasing after that one and leaving the 99? As these questions begin to flood in for us and the Pharisees about our role in the story and if we actually want to be a shepherd, since we're familiar as Pharisees with the Old Testament scriptures, Ezekiel 34 might start to seep into our mind a little bit. I'll be honest, I didn't remember this one. I uh, just read it this week, Ezekiel 34, and uh, it struck me I hadn't read uh, the parable of the lost sheep very well until, until reading this again. Ezekiel 34, the word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to these shepherds, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Sound familiar? Should not shepherds take care of their flock? You eat curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals. But you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. Then a little bit onwards. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. Because my flock lacks a shepherd, because all of you failed. Therefore, you shepherds, I will make this my flock. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for this flock. I will remove them from tending the flock. I will rescue the flock from their mouths. I, this is the Lord speaking, myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I will search for the strays and bring them back. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Are we actually the shepherds in this story? Doesn't feel like it after reading that. And then there's another parable just to kind of smack us again in the face. So we questioned whether or not we wanted to be a shepherd, and now we're put in the place of a woman. As a woman, this person has much less status in that society than a shepherd, and she's poor too. She has 10 silver coins, which maybe is a couple days worth of money. A couple days of uh, wages worth of money. And she also needs a lamp to light her home. It's likely a, a small home if she needs a lamp without windows. She's performing menial labor, cleaning her house. We don't want to be like this woman. We're strong, powerful leaders who have influence. Why am I being compared to this woman? 
And I can't relate to rejoicing over finding such an insignificant sum. This is even more true of the, the parable of the lost coin. Because the coin, the coin is worth hardly anything. Why would I rejoice over that and let alone invite all my friends over to celebrate this? Now we come to a turning point. These parables are over. And what do we do with it? How do we respond? What do we make of these stories? How do we, how did the Pharisees respond to Jesus' stories? Unlike the, the movies that I mentioned earlier, Jesus doesn't quite offer us some big reveal. The only way we can truly come to repentance is if we make the discovery ourselves. He doesn't force the medicine. He doesn't force the pill down our throats. He provides a gentle remedy. We have two options. We reject this story. We reject the gentle remedy. Or maybe we pretend we're going to take it and then we just ignore it. Or we recognize that there's no way that we're the good shepherd. Ezekiel 34 is our story. We can't leave these people. We are ashamed, perhaps, that we're unable to stomach being compared to a poor woman. All along, Jesus has been talking about repentance, and we realize that we too must repent, just like the sinners that we grumble against. And suddenly, verse 7 of Luke 15 comes back into focus. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. There's one falsehood hidden in plain sight in Luke 15, and that's that there's such a thing as a righteous person who needs no repentance. We are all lost sheep. This is the great physician's medicine. If you pray the, uh, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, we acknowledge this, that we are all lost sheep every day in our confession. It's a slightly different confession than we pray during Eucharist. We say, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. Now all the strange details of the parable make sense. They fall into place. We've longed to be the person in position of power, leadership, influence. But the truly good shepherd, not, not the kinds of shepherd we tried to be, the truly good shepherd humbles himself or herself. In this case, God humbles himself. Not just to the point of being comfortable being associated with the lowly, with shepherds, women, sinners, tax collectors, whoever it is, but in entering into intimate table fellowship with them, eating with them, even to the point of becoming like them. We as readers of the parable of the lost sheep know that Jesus isn't just a shepherd. He's the lamb of God that is slain for our sins. And we cannot read that without seeing that. He becomes a lamb. He becomes the sheep. He carries us on his shoulders, even bearing our very sin and death on the same shoulders at Calvary. And he gives all of himself, not grumbling like we do, at the most insignificant little thing. And he rejoices. He calls together all of his friends and neighbors, the whole company heaven, all of the saints and angels, and he brings us together, saves us all, and celebrates. He makes sinners heirs of his eternal kingdom. Several church fathers point out that 
a silver coin, the lost coin in the second parable, always was inscribed with the likeness of a king. God sees us in a dignified way, even though we're lost. We bear the image of God. He makes notorious sinners like Paul, a murderer and persecutor of Christians, and Moses, a murderer. He makes them shepherds of his flock. Stories that we get a glimpse into in the other readings this morning. He restores 99 sheep to 100 to wholeness, a number of perfection. He restores nine silver coins to wholeness to 10, a number of perfection. Those we called sinners, those we thank God we aren't like, you fill in the blank, I know you have them. Their presence in the kingdom of God is necessary for the kingdom of God to be whole. This is not our kingdom, this is God's kingdom. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus, unlike our personal kingdoms, is open to all. And the only thing he asks is that we repent. I think this is the perfect time to return to that story of the Pharisee going into the temple and uh, thanking God he isn't like the tax collector. We want to hear the tax collector's side of the story. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think that could stand on its own on most Sundays, but I do want to offer a couple final thoughts in conclusion. Sometimes Christians, including us Anglicans, will use mission statements like this when talking about something like evangelism. We are called to seek and save the lost. I understand and love the sentiment and the the heart and the call for evangelism, that is central for our lives. But when we speak that way, that we are called to seek and save the lost, we begin to tow some dangerous territory. We are not the good shepherd. Jesus, not us, but the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This this Sunday is, um, today is uh, one year anniversary of my ordination to the priesthood. And um, on my ordination a year ago, uh, Bishop Todd Hunter in in Churches for the Sake of Others, um, when he ordained me and and another fellow, um, he looked at us, and this is the one thing that I remember from that whole service that just really stuck with me, and I've returned to it very often. Um, He said, you as pastors, but then also looking at people like you guys, Christian leaders, people of influence in Christian communities, he said, you are most at risk of being functional atheists. Don't be a functional atheist. What does that mean? He said, you as a pastor, you as a Christian leader, are most at risk at waking up in the morning and thinking what I do today will save someone. That's functional atheism. We may not believe that God isn't real, but we're acting as if he is. We're acting as if we're the ones that could save people. That's functional atheism. 
If that's how we live, we may as well be atheists. My final charge to all of you is not to be functional atheists, but to know that Christ is the one who saves, not yourself. To know that Christ is the shepherd, the good shepherd. We cannot be the good shepherd. When we meet sinners, you know, sinners, the people we label as sinners, people who are other than us that we don't want to be like, often Jesus is already their companion. He's already welcomed them to the banquet feast. You don't know their story. And a lot of times, if we go thinking that we're the ones that could save them and not God, we're going to not meet Jesus in them and be changed by the way they can help us. Some of the most meaningful relationships in my life have been with people who I before would have categorized as poor or lowly or as not having much they could share with me. And I know many of you could share the same stories. Once in a while, there may be a sinner, right, who is unrepentant. We don't know their story. We don't know exactly what's going on with them. We are called to minister. We are called to evangelize. That is central to who we are called to be. But we must remember that we aren't the ones who seek and save the lost. We are called to, in some way, partner with God in that work. And I think there's a, there's a quote from a Methodist Sri Lankan pastor that I really love when it comes to this kind of posture. He says, when I evangelize, when I share the good news, I am just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Thanks be to God, the good shepherd, the great physician, the one who finds us and heals us and feeds us and makes us his sheep, heirs of his eternal kingdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.